Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. We're excited here today to have two very special guests, uh, Lexa Von Tobel, longtime friend of the firm, and, and Mark Batsian, both of Inspired Capital. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Excited Great to be here. here. Thanks for having us. Awesome. So by, by way of introduction, Alexa, l- let's start with you. You're, you're a founder turned investor. Why don't you tell us briefly about your background and how Inspired Capital came to be? Sure. Um, well, so uh, first, uh, I was a, a you know, Harvard undergrad uh, after that. Um, was part of a small company that got acquired. And that kind of was my first taste of, I, I love to build companies. If you go back and, you know, ask my mom from when I was 10, I used to be obsessed with CEOs, like far more than pop stars or, you know, anything culturally relevant. Um, and as a result, I, you know, I just figured out probably in my early 20s that I loved building businesses. So uh, as I went back to to business school in the fall of 2008, so, you know, similar time to this right now and the world's kind of sideways and you're not totally sure what the future is going to look like, I dropped out to, to found LearnBest. So uh, December 18th of 2008 is when I had my last day in business school, I moved to New York, and then spent the next really, you know, five or six years uh, standing the company up. Uh, we ended up building TurboTax for your wallet. So think TurboTax meets financial planning for everyday Americans. And it was a really simple problem that I had, which was I kept saying, here I am, I've gone to you know, a great school twice, and I couldn't tell you what the difference between a 401k or an IRA is. And I just had this vision of every American should get better access to, to financial planning, and let's go make it you know, democratized and easy and digital and affordable. And so we built the business. That's actually where I met Mark, and he can tell his own story. And then on our fifth birthday of being up and running, uh, we you know two million plus users. We ended up getting acquired uh, by Northwestern Mutual for about three hundred and seventy-five million dollars. And what I quickly realized was that one, uh, I loved the space, I loved the category, and I loved investing. And so at Northwestern Mutual, I joined the management team, became their uh, chief digital officer, and then chief innovation officer. Over there, actually, the venture fund that they had reported into me and Mark and and a few others, we ran it um, and did great work. Um, And at the end of all of that, I kind of said to myself, I really want to build a special firm on the East Coast. Uh, My husband and I love New York. Uh, we have three little kids, and I figured out that one day it just hit me. I would spend every night and weekend talking to founders for fun, like truly. And my husband finally looked at me and he was like, you have to go and do this for a living. You love it so much. And in that moment, I kind of looked at him and I was like, God, you're a genius. Um, but yes, that's what I should do. And um, anyways, we stood up Inspired Capital last year. It's a $200 million fund, and we're generalist funds. So we invest in everything. It's uh, truly anything. We like, you know, a tech bent and we like big and vivacious entrepreneurs, but we invest around the country. And anyways, we stood it up. And then right as we stood it up at the end of last year, COVID hit. So it's been a really interesting time to have the world completely transform underneath you. And I feel really honored that I get to work with Mark at Inspired. Awesome. And and, and Mark, uh, how about yourself? Uh, what's, what's your background and how, what are you focused on at Inspired Capital? 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, so some similarities to Alexa, some differences. Um, so I, I, I'm the son of uh, two immigrants from the former Soviet Union. I grew up in an immigrant community um, and sort of growing up was always interested in, in learning more about finance. It was something that was not well understood in, in, in the community I grew up in. And it was always just passionate about trying to understand how, how, do, how do you make people make smarter financial decisions? So, so after undergrad, that, that brought me to the financial services industry spent my first half of my career in traditional financial services, spanning everything from consulting to hedge fund investing to corporate development, uh, got to experience the last, the, the great financial recession, um, working for lots of the big financial institutions that were really at the, the center of everything. And that, that's really what started opening up my eyes to just how broken uh, financial services historically has been uh, with the average consumers in mind. And eventually that would bring me to Alexa uh, and LearnVest in the early days was really passionate about what LearnVest was doing. I was really trying to democratize financial advice for the masses. It was really a story that resonated deeply with me. Uh, so I came on board uh, to LearnVest, led strategy and business development there, uh, specifically built out our enterprise businesses, including what we call LearnVest Network, which was sort of the, the one of the early entrants into the concept of corporate financial wellness. And it's funny now seeing a bunch of startups uh, that are it seems like five or six different startups have popped up in that space over the last year or so to, to really build on the idea that, that companies should be helping their employees make smarter financial decisions as well. As Alexa mentioned, we got acquired by Northwestern Mutual um, and we, we launched and managed a venture fund for Northwestern Mutual for a few years, uh, made investments in sort of fintech 1.0 companies as we think about them, like Chime, Gabby, Ladder Life in the early days. And we're, we're excited to see sort of the, the, the strong growth of those companies and use that to help us uh, think about sort of the, the ongoing fintech strategy for Inspired as part of our fund. So I, I spend most of my time looking at fintech companies and, and companies that sort of have lots of similarities to fintech. And, and it's, it's been a great sort of first 18 months for Inspired as, as we really look through that strategy. Um, one thing that's just a fun fact about Mark and I is that through the acquisition of LearnVest, we had no, you know, external banker. It was literally him and I for Almost four months, um, you know, uh, I, you know, focused on running the company during the day, but at night we would go into acquisition mode. And um, I was nine months pregnant when we sold LearnVest. We literally sold on a Wednesday and I had my first daughter that weekend. And I always joke if Mark and I didn't like, you know, want to kill each other through that, we could probably get through any thing. And so it's just a really fun partnership. You know, we have Penny Pritzker um, and, and and Lucy Deland. Uh, uh, Penny Pritzker, obviously, former Secretary of Commerce and a renowned um, entrepreneur, but then Lucy Deland, one of the co-founders of Paperless Post and one of my absolute best friends. So it's a really special partnership. And also, we've known each other forever and we've been through so much. So that's been a really fun part of it. And Mark is just a joy to work with. I'll add as I'll add as a, an added fun point uh, that when we launched the funds last year, I also got to experience just being around uh, pregnancy twenty four seven as Alexa was pregnant and my wife was pregnant as we were fundraising. So <laughs> that's definitely right. If we can go through that, we can get through anything. Totally. You guys have been so your journalist fun, uh, but uh, but fintech is a, is a, is a is a, is a big part. You've been doing this. You know, you've been in fintech for over a decade. Uh, you started LearnVest in, in 2008, and, and Mark, you've been in for a long time. H- how has the industry evolved in, in the past decade or so? W- what phase of, of fintech are we in now? This is, uh, I think, kind of our way of digesting um, the world moving. So if you go back to 2008, when you know LearnVest was being stood up, there was a bunch of other companies that were being stood up in the ecosystem, Wealthfront, Betterment. 
what was really happening at that time was we were mimicking what I'm going to call fintech kind of um, at that time, fintech 1.0, which is we were taking what existed and digitizing it. So basically, let's make it better, more accessible, faster, a better brand. Let's make transparent pricing and effectively almost mimic the big incumbents, but do it through, you know, full digital speed, better tech, all of that. So offering kind of an Amazon-like service uh, at that time, but very much so mirroring what already existed and doing it better and faster. I think what we're starting to see, and you know, we've been it's been underway for a bit, is what again we kind of term fintech 2.0, which is this step change function where it's no longer mimicking what exists. It's really founders going after the distribution part of the ecosystem and basically embedding fintech in every single major audience that exists online. So if you have uh, a group of teachers online building the financial services for them. If you have Shopify building the financial services for them, if you have an Etsy store, you know, times a million building financial services for them, small business in that way. And I think what you're starting to see is every, you know, fintech is bleeding into every type of industry and it can become an ancillary revenue stream for any business that's really smart. Um, so that's one really clear step change, which is we're now getting into what I think is a far more exciting chapter, which is really thinking how do we democratize uh, the financial world? How do we create for every every single audience out there the tools that they really need for whatever their specific financial services are? And Mark can elaborate even more on this. Um, But one thing I'll just say that is a really clear lens that I go to work with every day, you know, building LearnVest, I'm a certified financial planner. I've written uh, some books on the topic. I stared at the American wallet for a decade you know, 78% live paycheck to paycheck. Most people carry enormous credit card debt north of $9,000. Most people don't have $400 in savings. And when you really think about that all day long, people have very specific needs for what they need for their wallet and thinking about how do we get the best services to the best parts um, of, you know, of, of the internet. And I think just, I think we're just getting started and it's a really exciting time. And Mark, feel free to add anything that you uh, see, obviously. Yeah, I think the one interesting analogy that we we sometimes talk about that I think is, is interesting to think about is if you think about fintech as sort of a, an entrepreneur, fintech 2.0 is sort of the entrepreneur growing up and and going to where the distribution is and really focusing on distribution and how do we how do we monetize faster through existing distribution channels. So go to where customers already are. Uh, what, so software platforms like an Etsy, for example, as Alexa mentions. Um, and give them the, the financial products that they need in those experiences and embed them within those experiences. And in many ways, it's, it's not necessarily a novel concept. I mean, financial services has been doing that for a long time. If you think about auto loans, you get an auto loan when you uh, go and buy a, a car at a dealership. Um, you, you, you think about a mortgage when you're actually going through like the real estate process. Uh, lots of those experiences have, have at minimum been cross-sold in the past. And FinTech is now just doing, is, is enabling that in a much more seamless transition uh, on those types of platforms. One thread you, you guys talk about is the self-driving wallet. Can, can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. This was very much so born out of uh, staring, you know, learned us at its core. We had built a, you know, patent pending software that basically would take 60 data points from an everyday consumer and give them a full robust financial plan for all aspects of their life. They are debt needs, their um, student debt needs, their savings needs, their retirement needs, their investing needs, and all the other small stuff that goes into your financial picture. And pretty much for that whole decade, Eric, I would sit there and I'd come home and I'd say, I'm not competing against any other company. 
I'm competing against apathy, Americans being overwhelmed. And it was really, again, and I, I say this so sincerely, it was such, I would walk down the, the street and I was like, I wish people woke up in the morning and said, I really want to manage my money. And the truth is, it just is not part of how people are wired or what people think. And so I've spent a lot of time thinking about if we didn't have constructs of what exists today in technology, if we could dream and go to the consumer and say, what do you really want? And again, this is what what we did for a decade. The consumer wants their money to take care of itself, truly. And they would like to have every, you know, I, I, I can very clearly envision a world where every hour on every hour, your money is going right where it needs to, because at its core, it's a mathematical equation. What's so awesome about our wallets and money and all the things that touch them is it truly is math. Um, and so there is always an objectively clear answer based on what should happen, as long as you know kind of any clear goals of the consumer. So if you if you think about a self-driving wallet, then you have to think about what has to exist in order to get there. And I think that's some of the things that we're going to see get unlocked over the next five years, which is First, we have this thesis on frictionless money. Right now, money is incredibly frictionful. If, if you think about it, all of us on the, you know this podcast right now, we get paid every two weeks, but we get to work every day. That's a really big disconnect. We effectively give you know a, a loan to our employer for everyday hourly Americans. They often get paid every week. If, if somebody's living paycheck to paycheck, and you actually can pay them hour by hour that they're putting in the the hour, the work. You can do a lot to better optimize their own cash flow. And what's broken about the infrastructure financially here in America is cash flow. So that's part one. We view this frictionless money. Money's going to move a lot faster in the future. If you think about it, you know, I once heard Travis Kalanick say, if you stand up on buildings, you could look down and you could see Ubers flowing like water. I, I, in many ways, can envision the same future for money, which is right now it has a lot of friction. ACH rails to RTP rails, it takes five days to actually wire money. Think about that. Five days, it's ridiculous. We get paid in these very odd chunks that just got stood up. And so as you can break those chunks down and get it so that money begins to flow properly and it's frictionless, then you can actually think about brains around your wallet that can go and literally begin to take that extra $20 in your savings account and put it in your 401k for you. Put it in your you know, your kids 529 for you. And you know what? Consumers would really love that. And I'll kind of end this point on, we often think of the constructs of what technology exists today, as opposed to what consumers would like. And I can envision a world very much where somebody walks into their kitchen and there's an Amazon Alexa, no pun intended, who just says, hey, you've had no security breaches. Any of the rules that you set up, let's say you have a bunch of kids and they have credit cards and you want to make sure that they have certain you know, savings limits have not been breached and the markets we expect to be up 1% today and all of the goals you set up are still happening. Most consumers don't even want to look at their money. So these are, you know, it gives you a flavor of the sort of things that we think about or that we've thought about for a really long time. And as a result, there's been some investments we've made in this space. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll add to that. I mean, I think one thing important to, to recognize and sort of how the financial services industry exists today is that sort of lots of that friction is, is a feature, not a bug of how the financial services industry has been constructed. The large financial institutions, for the most part, don't want to make it easy for uh, consumers or, or, or even businesses to move their money out of their accounts. Um, so, so the friction is sort of uh, core to many of the ways they think about monetization. And 
developing new uh, either fintech companies or fintech infrastructure to allow for more frictionless money movement is it's key to have those technology advances because we have to sort of break out of how the financial services industry built itself uh, out of its own self-interest as, as opposed to what consumers fundamentally want from the from how they engage with financial services totally and how far do you think fintech has to go to deliver on, on, on that vision or any other major roadblocks worth mentioning I think they're definitely making improvements. I mean, I think if you look at lots of the infrastructure development over the last several years, from uh, things like Plaid to um, we're, we're an investor in a, in a company called Phoenix, which is uh, actually helping companies uh, own more of their payments value chain as opposed to giving it to third parties. Lots of the infrastructure is being developed where we're getting, I think, closer and closer to that point where you can have that frictionless money movement. At minimum, helping people just understand all the different places where their money is, how they should be thinking about optimizing the allocation across their different accounts. And people increasingly have uh, way more accounts than they used to have in the past. So I, th- I think we're getting closer. I think we'll, our, our thesis is definitely over the coming five to 10 years, we'll get even closer. And that's, that's informing lots of our uh, investment theses. Uh, I think one thing we also have to recognize is that FinTech can only do so much. FinTech can help the math of what you have, but it can't necessarily change how much you have. And so as we think about FinTech, we always are sort of also grounded in the fact that fintech can't change the broader macro economy we can't get fintech can't get us out of covid fintech can't get the federal reserve to stop printing money every day um so there's there's also limitations in how much fintech can can help consumers at the end of the day one thing i just want to say um just kind of an ancillary point you know as right now consumers uh you know there's kind of the we unbundled the wallet and now some people argue that there's the rebundling of the wallet um if you go to a self-driving wallet world, you don't really care how many accounts you have, right? Um, because as long as they can be connected to a brain that you can really trust, um, you're in a position where you actually then really want to get the exact best account for the exact thing that you need based on who you are. So I will say, I don't know that the the rebundling, I think we re- will unbundle again once um, that technology exists. And then I think there's some infrastructure things that are worth just kind of commenting on and Mark, feel free to jump in. But if you think about it right now, so fintech bleeds in my mind into employment. Also, you know, wherever the money comes from, whatever the the the, the kind of infrastructure that that works. So, I also think the solopreneur, the the small business owner, fintech, like those for me, those categories are all the same. As a certified financial planner, if you're you know, it, it, which I am, if you're a small business owner, it runs through your own finances. So, as we are, you know, post COVID, one of our big views is. People are going to work the way they want to work from wherever they are. And so I think we're going to see more and more of this passion economy, gig economy, all of that as it explodes. There's one big infrastructure thing that's obvious to, to me that is missing is right now, if you have a stable job, it gives you your health benefits. It gives you your 401k. It gives you some life insurance benefits. And you live in a very patriarchal society that basically provides all of these other things from your employer. So at some point over the last you know 50 years, we said your employer is also your financial hub and is responsible for you. That's going away day by day, year by year, as quickly as we can see it. And I think COVID is going to be a major accelerant to that. So you know if you are a creator on Patreon or you are a gigger or you are running a Shopify store, where are you getting your 401k? Where are you getting your, you know, your access to some of these other benefits? And I think that that needs to get solved pretty quickly. So I think there's a lot of infrastructure that's getting stood up. Um, and that's another place we're pretty excited. 
Yeah, uh, say more, uh, maybe Mark, in terms of where you're excited in terms of infrastructure, where you're looking to invest or uh, where the opportunity is. I I think for where we definitely see lots of excitement is is sort of going back to the point we were talking about of go where the distribution is. So if you look at like the last five years, for example, some of the breakout companies like in the firm, Affirm was sort of one of those first solutions to uh, embed itself at point of sale. Um, So uh, it saw the opportunity that, that more and more people were wary of credit cards, uh, lower and lower usage of credit cards, but but people but credit serves a fundamental purpose. Um, so what did the firm do? They went and embedded themselves in some of the biggest e-commerce stores online and said, you can get an affirm loan at, at your point of sale. Uh, I think we're, we're starting to see the next wave of that with things like warranty insurance. There are companies like Clyde and Extend uh, and Mulberry out there that are doing similar things with, with warranty insurance. Uh, I think we, we fundamentally believe that more and more products, whether they be uh, auto insurance products, uh, consumer loans, business lending will, will be increasingly embedded into the vertical uh, software solutions that service those different types of customers or the e-commerce stores where they, there's there's a fit for additional financial products to be bundled into to the end sale. Uh, so so I, I really think that increasingly over time, more and more of the financial products you think about, they won't be a, a dedicated purchase decision that you'll go to a broker or uh, an online an online fintech to go service it, they'll just be embedded into many of the other places that you go to do your day-to-day activities. There's been this sentiment that uh, all companies are, are fintech companies now. Can you sort of ex- explain the sentiment and then comment to, to what a degree you, uh, you agree with it? I think what we believe is that most companies have the potential to be fintech companies. Uh, so like the most basic thing you can think about is fundamentally almost every company uh, thinks about payments in some in some capacity, for example. Companies are fundamentally the transfer of value from one, one agent to another agent. So payments are always key to just how companies can, can operate. Um, and, and many of the biggest breakout companies in history in fintech have been payments companies. Uh, so I think that at minimum, most companies have at least the ability to own their own payments experience. That, that was sort of core to our investment in Phoenix. Uh, but I think you'll start seeing more and more different types of companies that can start offering things like loans or deposit bank accounts, uh, business bank accounts like Shopify has started doing for many, for many of its merchants, uh, where if, if they want, they can definitely start augmenting their own revenue and, and build new revenue streams through financial services products that are embedded in their experience. So, And I, the, the, yeah, and I was going to say, and the key there is actually um, making the compliance regulatory seamless. And so we've seen a lot of companies that have stood up saying we will make that as, you know, as seamless as humanly uh, possible. Uh, the only other thing I would just add to Ken, you know, uh, I think fintech is going to be a really broad term. If it started relatively narrow, as I, you know, let's use that analogy of fintech 1.0, where it was very much just mimicking what exists. Fintech 2.0 is going to touch many, many, many different categories out there to Mark's point from solopreneurs to entrepreneurship, to small business, to large business, um, to infrastructure, to ecosystem, to payments. And then that kind of eats into a lot of things. And so again, Inspired is a generalist fund. Uh, you know, some of our best in- investments to date have been in social apps. And But that said, it's very much, uh, you know, FinTech is bleeding into a lot of big categories. I think that's actually uh, one exciting thing for us as as we are a generalist fund, when we can talk to different types of companies, whether they be marketplace companies or SaaS companies or whatnot, and say, oh, five years down the road, we see how you can how you can also monetize through financial services and be part of the story around their future strategy. Totally. 
given the potential for more and more companies to become fintechs or offer fintech products, what does that mean for pain points of current fintech infrastructure? I'm I'm happy to just uh, kind of elaborate on you know some of the some of the infrastructure you know ACH rails for example, and even some of the big behemoths that banks sit on et cetera are really quite out of date. And I think that there's a lot of work that needs to happen on the infrastructure side to get to this world where our money flows flawlessly, our bills get paid flawlessly. You know, the fact that we still write checks, there's just so many things that exist that don't exist in places like Europe and and, and beyond. Um, So I would just say there's a ton on the infrastructure side that is being chipped away at. Um, It's definitely a place that we're really interested in, in, in making a few bets. So if you're listening out there, come chat with us. I would say that's an interesting one. One other thing that's interesting to say is, you know, I think credit comes in in and out of vogue, and there may be a chance that credit comes back into vogue over the coming decade, just given everything that's going on in the credit environment. So I think that's another kind of, I would say, broader uh, place that I, I think could be really compelling. Mark, I don't know what you want to add. We're, we're, we're making improvements, but there's, there's still lots of opportunity for entrepreneurs that want to solve uh, other pain points. Let's talk about uh, incumbents um, and and how they react and how how they uh, sort of uh, engage with startups. You know, obviously, Northwestern Mutual acquired LearnVest for $375 So, you know, you went from early stage fintech to a Fortune 100 company. Will the acquisitive behavior of incumbents continue? A hundred percent. So if you had asked me one thing I'm extremely certain on, and, you know, you've just seen Plaid get acquired, Credit Karma get acquired, um, there will be many, many, many more acquisitions. And I think that's for so many reasons. I think um, you know, young young companies get to push boundaries, jump to the next innovation curve, and literally leapfrog over some technical infrastructure. They get to be built on new rails, new platforms. And so I think the one thing that is quite obvious to me, and again, you know, one of our, our goals that inspired when we look at a company is we look at the, the full tech stack. We ourselves are, you know, quite technical and um, have a lot of acumen in terms of thinking about, you know, how do you build something so that as it gets bigger, it gets better. And, you know, one of the things that we do like to think about is if, in, you know, insert incumbent, there's many, um, and, you know, even some of the companies that we now think of, you know, PayPal, let's say, for example, PayPal is 20 years old. You know, you think of it as like a new tech company. It's 20 years old. And I think, you know, uh, and I love Dan Schulman over there. As we think about the future, I think you're just going to see the incumbents, not just the banks, not just, you know, the insurers, um, but even the the kind of, you know, 2000 uh, tech companies uh, in the space go and gobble up um, young companies for innovation. I also think that you'll see a lot of ancillary um, uh, acquisitions where people want to get into financial services for a lot of the trends that we're talking about. At its core, financial services are data businesses, right? We know a lot about you. We have incredible data sets. And so I think that you'll also see a lot of um, non-financial incumbents say, hey, we'd like to, to, to have better access to this part of the ecosystem. Totally. Let's talk about COVID. What impact is, is COVID and, and the virtual world having on, on fintech? And are you seeing anything different early stage uh, uh, in early stage on, on you know, fintech right, right now? Uh, any early signals from portfolio companies? I, was say, I mean, net net, it's, it's definitely been positive uh, for fintech. I think fintech, fintech was hot before COVID. It's even hotter now. Um, and, and we're definitely seeing more and more entrepreneurs wanting to go into this space because of all the opportunity that they're, that they're seeing. And part of that is because COVID has fundamentally changed uh, the demand for fintech on the consumer side, consumers can no, like almost by definition can no longer go to branches. Uh, digital banking is much more important. So neobanks uh, very well positioned for that. 
Uh, same thing with 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 business banking. We have we have a portfolio company called Row that saw a huge demand in its product post COVID because people could no longer do their business banking in, in branch. At the same time, I think we saw also fintechs fill in a pretty big gap to to help consumers and small businesses faster uh, coming out of COVID. So we saw Chime uh, give people their their stimulus checks faster than the government was able to get them out to people. Small uh, fin- small business fintechs were were helping people get their PPP process their PPP loans a lot faster and more efficiently than uh, lots of the incumbents. Uh, so I think there was an opportunity for fintechs to really shine during COVID. I think another thing that we, we've actively been thinking about, uh, depending on how the, the the November elections turn out, historically we we think that uh, big crises often spur significant regulatory changes, um, and that creates new opportunities for innovation because new entrants can take advantage of those regulatory changes faster than incumbents. I think we saw that coming out of 2008, lots of the the great fintech companies that emerged in the 2010s were almost either directly or indirectly uh, a byproduct of the regulations that came from Dodd-Frank. And we think we'll see similar type of regulatory changes coming out of this crisis as lots of the structural issues in the country were exposed during COVID and and, uh, lots of fintech opportunities will emerge when when, uh, new policies are put in place because of that. Yeah, and I'll I'll just add on a totally different thread. I think COVID, you know, we internally literally say that we are going to live in a new reality after this. And again, I'm stating some of the obvious, but I think one of the big things that we like to think about is we go into building um, businesses and between our partnership, we built and scaled 10 businesses. I think what's interesting about COVID is for the first time you have, you know, 20 million people unemployed. We haven't seen this ever in, in, in the history of our, of our, you know, modern economy. And I think that is a real challenge. And a lot of those jobs aren't going to come back. And in some ways, you know, we started the, the year in 2020, we're going to end the year in 2030 in terms of digitization of everything. But what that also means is that a huge swath of jobs are being digitized out very rapidly right now. And so I think as a result, some of the things, and you know, for me, this applies to the wallet, because as you think about how are we going to put, you know, 15, 20, whatever the number ends up being, million Americans back to work when there's roughly 165 million Americans working. That's a huge part of the everyday population. And that's a huge weight on the country. And I think it kind of gives you a sense of just the value system of our firm. We also want to go find ways where we can find massive problems to solve and then try to help put people back to work. So that is, again, you know, in our mind, it's a part of FinTech thread is also helping people earn. So I think that's been one of the big things that's kept us up at night. I also think it's a really interesting, uh, massive opportunity for entrepreneurs out there listening. Let, let's segue into Gen Z. So that, it's a demographic people like to talk, talk a lot about, obviously. H- how is this economic moment going to impact Gen Z when it comes to their relationship with, with FinTech and financial services? Yeah, I'll start. Um, first of all, I think Gen Z is really uh, unique in the way that they think about their wallet as compared to other uh, uh, generations. First of all, they will have lived through 2008. They will have lived through COVID. Um, they really have watched their family struggle financially. And so they care more about money than generations prior in terms of really wanting to think about wanting to make it, wanting to be mindful of it. The other thing, though, is they are experiencing a low yield environment, which we think will stay for a long time. 
And as a result, we think maybe new asset classes will be opened up and rapidly adopted by Gen Z. Um, So I think Gen Z think about money more than everybody. You know, in generations prior, they've had a front row seat now to two major economic crises in their young life, which is a powerful thing. They've watched their families deeply struggle. And as a result, um, we also think that they're going to lead the charge on fundamentally thinking about their careers differently. They will care about money. They will use the internet to make money. Um, and we think that they may be the most most creative audience as they think about um, how to make money, how to push money, how to think about asset classes. Totally. Branching, uh, branching out, out a little bit, what haven't we yet talked about that you think is next for fintech? What, what related sectors uh, are you excited about? I think one thing we, we've definitely been spending lots of time on, and I think we're seeing an increasing number of entrepreneurs going after it, is sort of the ability to go after very specific segments and vertical vertical solutions within within fintech. Um, I mean, fundamentally, financial services products are are just number. They're products about numbers. Uh, it's figuring out sort of the riskiness of a of a borrower. It's figuring out the the attractiveness of an investment opportunity, et cetera. It, it, they're fundamental. Um, and the more we can segment uh, different products, uh, the more the theoretical better data sets we can be getting on on specific customers, and, and we should be able to get smarter about how we provide capital to, to different types of groups. Uh, so I think we'll, we'll increasingly be seeing fintech solutions focus on specific types of people and segments of the market, whether that be of small business focused financial services, fintech solutions aimed, targeted just at teachers, at solopreneurs, et cetera. I think we're going to see a much more stratification of uh, customer segments and points, point solutions from fintech targeting those different, the, those different customers. Yeah, and what I would add is if you think about kind of fintech very broadly, it's how to earn, how to save, how to spend, and how to grow your money. And I think where I'm most um, excited outside of, you know, some of the tech and the infrastructure and the driverless wallets, I'm really focused on the, the how to earn. Um, you know, I, I, I interviewed the Patreon founder uh, recently, and, you know, just that the, I don't think that a young person will think about our world in the same way post-COVID. I don't think that they were on track to think about our world in the same way that maybe, you know, I, I will as, you know, a 36-year-old, but I think that this has amplified it by a lot. I think that we've now figured out that we can all work in our homes. That genie has now left the bottle, and it's going to be a very hard one to put back in for the entire country. I heard somebody really smart say that, and it really struck me. And I think what we're going to see from this moment going forward is that you can literally work wherever you want, earn money wherever you want, use the tools and, you know, in your, the palm of your hand on your phone to make more money. And I think what we're going to see is full careers that are just built that way for the rest of their lives. And that's going to be a really fun thing to watch because I think we're going to be able to put uh, people who are in need of extra savings to work very quickly as we create that connectivity. So I see a very bright future in that regard. Is there anything else that you wanted to uh, make sure that you got across that we didn't yet yet get to? Uh, this has been very comprehensive. Sure. No, I, I would just say, you know, um, our our vision and mission with Inspired Capital was, you know, we, we've been the founders, we've been the entrepreneurs, we've been in the seats. Um, I always joke, I have every wrinkle to prove it. Uh, and like, you know, the blisters on my hands from like, you know, the holding the reins and also a lot of sleepless nights. Our whole goal with putting the firm together was, one, we really want to be here to back big inspirational founders. We almost go into each uh, investment being like, we know it's going to take 15 years, but also we know it's going to be brutal. And that's kind of our viewpoint as we go into it, which 
I think is a really fun psychological safety that you get to create with founders where they really know that you know the challenges. So we've been having, I think, a, 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 a wonderful um, year up and running. And we're really excited. We're investing all around the country, um, all categories, and just have a really, I, I would say, very committed and dedicated team to, to, to the vision. And we also love Village Global. So thank you. Um, I didn't get to give the shout out that I, uh, I was honored to get to be part of Village Global before Standing Up Inspired. And so just, you know, I've been a friend of yours for a bit and excited uh, for, for everything you guys are doing. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I appreciate you, you, you guys being part of, the, part of the network and excited to do more together. For the listeners who want, who want to go deeper and, and want to learn more, you know, we highly recommend working with Inspired. Where, where can they uh, find you guys uh, online? We purposely made it really easy. Alexa at Inspired Capital, Mark at Inspired Capital, and you can follow us on social or Instagram. Uh, you can message us, uh, message us at any time, but yeah, just uh, Alexa and Mark at Inspired Capital. Love talking to entrepreneurs at all times. So please reach out. <laughs> awesome. Uh, Alexa, Mark, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, great. Eric. You're the best. Stay safe. Awesome. Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.